Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. All right, welcome everybody to uh, our Wednesday night networking. We are happy to uh, be hosting or have a special guest tonight of Gabe Brown. Um, he's one of my mentors and uh, a colleague of mine that I've uh, just really enjoyed spending time with and at seminars and conferences. Uh, it's great to have him on here tonight. Um, but first, we're going to talk a little bit about our sponsors. Um, uh, real big thank you to the Gateway Research Organization for hosting this. Uh, it's their platform that we're using. So um, they're also providing some funding to cover some speaker fees. So the Gateway Research Organization is an applied research association. Uh, um, there's quite a few of them across Alberta. Um, we have, I think there's 13 total in, in Alberta. And I know you guys in other provinces and other states, you have similar type organizations. They are not-for-profit. They do research and and uh, probably 80 to 90% or 95% of my education over the last 20 years has come from events and speakers and conferences and, and seminars that they've put on. So I'm very grateful to groups like that. Uh, I guess the other sponsor is uh, Greener Pastures. Um, we're doing this just because we want to get the networking out there. A lot of the conferences and things that I've been on in the last, uh, well, this winter, basically, it seems so impersonal, right? H half of the knowledge and education I get from going to a conference or going from a private industry school is the networking, the people that you get to talk to and, you know, sitting around at coffee break and lunchtime, uh, brainstorming and the contacts you make are invaluable. So I want you guys to treat tonight like that, right? You're at the coffee bar, you're at the um, dinner table and who's sitting at the table with you. There's a whole bunch of people sitting at your table here in chat. If there's somebody on here that makes a comment or a question that's asked that triggers something, by all means, put a comment in chat. Uh, private message them in chat, you know, talk to them, make that connection. And, and uh, you know, this is the whole reason we're doing this because we're, we're really worried that networking is, is lacking this year. And regenerative agriculture is growing. It has been for the last 10 years and we're not gonna let a little virus stop us from continuing to grow and network. So um, that's what the whole purpose of this is tonight. So now our topic tonight, uh, is going to be roots because I just love the way Gabe says the word root. It's yes. a root or a root. It's a, yeah. I love it. So we're going to talk about polycultures and try and maybe focus a little bit under the ground to see what those root systems are doing there. I got a couple of questions for Gabe myself. So um, that's basically what we're going to do. Um, a little bit of promotion about Gabe. Gabe's got a book. If you want to uh, uh, buy his book after, uh, by all means, where do you buy it, Gabe? Wherever. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You've never bought one, right? Yeah, I've yeah. never bought one. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Okay, I, so. I don't know where it's available in Canada. So. Okay. I'm sure yeah. they can Google it. So, Excellent. So we're going to talk tonight about the polycultures and the root systems involved with that, because I think it's really important to be able to understand that. Um, one of my phrases I've been saying for years is that a monoculture is ugly. I absolutely hate the monoculture. I'm not against any one particular crop. But if it's grown as a monoculture, I don't like it. And I've been pretty blunt about that in the past. So i uh, just like to maybe jump below ground tonight and, and study that. Because what we get is, a if we get a polyculture of plants, we get a polyculture of root systems, which I think from there, we get a polyculture of soil organisms. And that's where the magic happens. That's where we get free fertility. We get you know soil building. We get all sorts of really good things when we get that polyculture of, of, of uh, biology under the soil. So. 
Uh, Gabe, why don't you kick it off? Tell us what you think of the roots under the ground. The roots under the ground, huh? Well, thank you, Steve and Amber. Great to be with Gateway once again. This is one of my favorite uh, sessions is with, with you guys. And what, what hit me most about 2020 and the COVID was the fact that I was not able to get to Canada all year. And that just killed me because I... I go to Canada quite regularly, like like probably six to 10 times a year. And so 2020 was pretty hard on me because of that. So we want to talk about roots. And that's one of the things that I always often get asked, um, if you could do anything over again, start over, what would it be? Well, number one thing, I'd have a living plant. I'd keep that soil covered with diversity, but that all goes back to diverse root systems also. Diverse roots feed diverse biology. Diverse biology runs the whole nutrient cycle. And you have to have that in order to get healthy plants, healthy animals, and healthy people. And so it all starts below ground. And we're doing a lot of work right now trying to figure out just how that diversity of different rooting depths equates to different phytochemical compounds that end up in our food. And it's those phytochemical compounds that really drive human health. And so the only way we're gonna be healthy as a population, the only way our animals are gonna be healthy, it has to come through diversity. It has to come through the soil. And that all starts with diverse root systems. So there, I left that wide open. They could take that anywhere, Steve. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Very, very good. Well, people have been quick on the questions already. Um, so Lester, you are up first. Do you want to go ahead? Okay. Uh, my question is about um, stackable enterprises. We're talking about profitability and different things here in the last few weeks. And uh, I think like you, I know I've listened to you a few times in Manitoba and, uh, and your son said, dad, I mean, yeah, we're grazing cows, but I mean, that's the only diversity, that's not very diverse. So you said, well, we should add sheep and other things. And I just like to have your perspective on what, what you think should be added and can be added. And is it a good thing or a bad thing or stuff like that? Yeah, that's a great question, Lester. Thank you for asking it. So, I would need to know a lot more about your context before I answer that. You know, for instance, what type of environment are you in? Do you, do you have woodlands? You know, do you have brush? Uh, do you have native prairie? What do you have? Because that'll dictate what enterprises you can stack. Uh, for instance, on our operation, we run cattle, sheep, hogs, now hogs, they do okay in our environment, but they do a lot better if we were wooded areas. Um, we have uh, land hens, we have broilers, we do bees. Uh, we tried goats, but goats is one. We just didn't have the browse, the forage base for them. And so we no longer run goats. So you have to determine and take a look at your farm or ranch what am I not taking advantage of? What historically would be here? And, and 
you know, was it grazing ruminants or, or was it smaller species of livestock? What would fit if you're a very small operation, you know, maybe it's rabbits or something like that. So every farm or ranch is different. And, and that's one of the, you know, one of the fun things about my life now, I get to travel all over and, and be on a myriad of different farms and ranches. And man, it, it just, uh, you know, my mouth waters when I look at the possibilities on some of those places. So you're going to have to make that decision for yourself based on what resources are available, what you want to do, and what, what is there a market for, you know? Um, we, we don't have to be addicted to work, you know? So you don't want to, you don't want to just work for the sake of working. So what can you make a, a profit at? Uh, I'd add to that too. Um, depends on what the economics in your environment is, right? That's a, that's a big determining factor because what Gabe does on his farm doesn't necessarily mean it'll work on your farm. Yeah. And if you're going to stack enterprises is if, if you can get a symbiotic relationship between them, then I, I think that's a lot more effective because that helps improve the economics on both of them. So, but honestly, the answer from my perspective always comes down to economics. Um, is it, you know, is it going to work in your environment? Yep. Um, yep. So. Steve, you raise a great point. So for instance, one of the things I grow a lot of uh, seed crops, both grain crops and some cover crops for seed. So we're running that through a cleaner all the time. Well, that's the perfect feed for uh, hogs and chickens and turkeys we run. Um, you know, use those screenings to your advantage. Take the waste stream of one enterprise to fuel the profit in another. That's how you make money. Yep, you bet. That's awesome. awesome. Uh, next up, we have Troy Bishop. Hi, wow, Mr. Brown. Troy, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. So uh, I know a lot of farmers have read your book and uh, are, are drinking the seed planting Kool-Aid, um, planting a lot of seed running a lot of equipment and I'm not sure their context is exactly right. I'm just wondering on a lot of places when we're gonna start adopting perennial systems where we don't have to keep running equipment, planting cover crops and seed. And then uh, it sort of goes to the regenerative. If we, Kevin Fulton talked about closing the barn door, closing the gate, if we're truly regenerative, when do we stop all the inputs? Your thoughts on that, maybe? You bet, Troy. Great question. And I'm sure Steve remembers what's the first thing I say in my presentation, Steve. One of the first things. My favorite quote from Gabe Brown is, nothing builds soil faster than a perennial polyculture. It's about perennials, you know. And, Troy, that's one of the reasons I took, uh, of my 2,000 acres of uh crop ground, we've seeded 1,500 of it back to perennials. I have excellent cropland, but that doesn't mean it won't make excellent pasture. And so I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, that this current production model we have is one that is definitely unsustainable. And with the clients we're working with, uh, we're encouraging it, if it's in their context, to go back to perennials. We only use the cover crops in those situations to set up the soil, get the nutrient cycling, get the soil aggregation there, get fungal to bacterial ratios right. 
where you can have success than seeding perennials. So am I advocating everybody goes to all perennials? No, it's about context though. But let's face it, it's absolutely ridiculous the amount of grain that we're producing. We're producing way more than the world can handle. That, that just does not make good economic sense. And uh, you know, whether it be on the farm scale for our communities or for society. Does that answer that? Yep. You're awesome, Mr. Brown. Thank you. <laughs> Troy, I'll add to that. Um, we got to get the grain farmers to the table. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that these cover crops are doing. And, and guys sure. like A. Brown can go out there and talk to them. Yep. If they're not even at the table, they're never going to hear about regenerative agriculture. So this is one step. If, a lot of people are promoting that you, you rip up your pastures and put in cover crops. To me, that's a step backwards. Yep. Like total step backwards. Yeah, I hear that all the time. Yeah. And, you know, you, it's a legitimate question you ask. And too many people hear presentation, they think they got to go tear up their perennials and seed annuals. And I said, why would you ever do that? Proper management, stewardship of those livestock, you can get the diversity in there, you know? And, and right now our firm, we're consulting on well over 22 million acres. And we do just do not recommend that. We're not gonna go tear up perennials. And the beauty of it is a lot of our clients, we work with a lot, a lot of clients who are in those I states down here, you know, that grow nothing but corn and soybeans. Yeah. It is amazing the interest we have now in putting that some of that land back into perennials. And that's, as Steve said, that's sorely needed to really advance soil health and ecosystem health. Thank you. Thanks, Troy. Um, next up, we have Clay. Are you ready to go there, Clay? I'm ready, if you're yes. ready. Look at that, that was fast. <laughs> is this like Clay from Grand Prairie, Clay? No, it's Clay from Working Cows Podcast, Clay. Oh, that clay, that clay. Clay. <laughs> and shy clay. Time now here for me, I, my friend. Uh, yeah. A Amber shut my video off, so I can't turn it back on. But uh, Oh, I just asked to turn it back on. All right. There we go. There we go. And my wife. So she's now she's now part of the crew. So i uh, so still I, getting questions from your podcast. You know that, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, I think. That's good. Uh, so I fresh back from ranching for profit, and um, they talked a lot about grazing it up. And we're, we were very dry at the end of 2020. Uh, the, the last part of the growing season was very dry, and we've continued to have a dry winter, although probably not much of it would get in the ground right now anyways. But... Anyways, if it continues to be dry, is grazing it up, and by that I mean making a, a really light pass first and then returning and tightening up the rotation and taking more of the biomass, also known as leaving less residual, but giving more of the ranch rest. Is that a good strategy in, in dry conditions, or should I try to give the whole place, uh, take the top third off of everything? I don't know. Those are some of the things I'm trying to wrestle with after after my experience at Ranching for Profit. Okay. The, you know, we could go a lot of different directions with this one, Steve, but I am a firm believer that it is about, it does nobody any good if you can't make a profit and stay out on the land. So there are occasions where you may take more. As a general rule though, one of the things we teach is you have to be adaptive. 
and you have to read what that soil and conditions are telling you, okay? The thing we see over and over again on the ranches we consult on is a lack of soil armor. You have to leave residue on the soil surface, especially, well, everywhere, but in dry conditions, it's all about biology. You're only gonna cycle nutrients via biology. And that biology lives in and on thin films of water in the pore spaces between soil aggregates. So if you see bear, if you take too much, it's gonna come back and bite you over and over again. That's why I would hope they talk about at Ranching for Profit, what we advocate is keeping cow numbers in the worst drought you've had on your place, how many cows could you sustain there? That should be your cow herd. And then in good forage years, you use your yearling stockers, replacements, et cetera, as the variable. So, you know, you need to be the one who looks at your pastures, where are you at? Now, I myself am not really an advocate of, of uh, going and just skimming across, you know, fast gro grass growth, of course, you move a little faster, slow gra grass growth, slower. But the thing of it is, I, I was just showing this on a presentation I gave last night. Here we are, mid-January, late January in North Dakota, and I've got green grass that's photosynthesizing, okay? My cattle are going to be, they're out grazing. We haven't, we haven't fed yet, they're out grazing. My point is, though, I would hate to graze that now and then graze it again in the spring because I'm grazing those tillers, those growing points right now on some of that, okay? You got to be aware of that and put it in your context. So, Clay, I can't specifically answer your question because I'm not on your ranch. Only you can answer that. Steve, what do you want to add? Yeah, I'm right on, 100%. Uh, the one thing I would add uh, you can get away with that clay, I think only if you've pre-planned it. Okay, so what I talk about all the time is you can't plan for a drought in a drought, right? You've got to be planning for the next drought 10 years ahead. So if let's say for seven years, we had decent to good years, we're putting residue, we're leaving residue, we've got a good soil armor on there. On that year when the drought hits, I can take all the green matter off. But I showed a video back in 2015 where right? We were in a drought, severe drought. I grazed everything down and my pasture looked brown because they took everything green. But when I zoomed down on the soil surface, there's seven years where the residue, right? Well, not all of it, but mm -hmm. right for the last seven to 10 years, I've been leaving residue and it's laying there, right? You can't see topsoil. We've got mm -hmm. a soil armor. We've got residue laying there. In that case, yeah, it wouldn't hurt me at all to, you know, graze it right down because we're trying to lengthen that rest period. Yep. Uh, but if you're in a drought and you haven't done that and you've got, you know, very, you know, poorly managed fields, you're just starting this to graze it right down. You're going to put yourself backwards. And yep. I did that lots when I started. Yep. Clay, if I may add. So 2020 was the second driest year ever recorded here in Bismarck. It was our fifth year in a row of less than 50% normal precip. Okay. We've, it's been five years now. I plan accordingly though. We have still, we're still running the same cow numbers we ran five years ago. Now we're let, running less stockers and, and we've sold steer calves instead of running them, things like that. But one of the things I do all the time regardless is we defer several pastures where we will not graze them the entire year 
And those are the first ones we turn out on. That's where we have on. That has just saved me more often than not, because you have, you know, if you have the right type of cattle that can do the epigenetics that can handle that highly lignified forage, and then you get new grass coming up in there, you're good to go. And it won't affect your breed up or anything. Very good guys. Thank you. Thanks, Clay. Thanks, Clay. Uh, next up we have Mark Paulson. Mark, are you ready to go there? I am. Awesome. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Steve. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. I have a small farm south of Kansas City, and uh, my my property has quite a bit of contour to it. A lot of it is a former CRP, so it has a lot of native grasses on it. And I'm wondering uh, what I could add to that to add a little further diversity. I, I'd like to uh, see if I can add a little bit of protein to my uh, forage and I just add a little more diversity. What, what uh, class and species of livestock are you running, Mark? I'm using cattle, usually cattle that I'm buying seasonally and selling at the end of the grazing season. And I have historically used, uh, you know, with 600 pound calves, I'm contemplating buying cows this year instead of calves, try to get a little more, uh, a little more concentration this year than what I've been able to achieve in the past. Uh can I ask the species composition? So approximately what percent is grasses, what percentage forbs, what percentage legumes? I, I don't have very many forbs at all. I'd really like to, in particular, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Mostly a big blue stem, little blue stem, Indian bunch grass is most of what my pasture is. Mm -hmm. Pretty typical for the area. Uh, that's okay. I would... I would, before you go spend the money and try and intercede, I mean, these, these forbs and legume, forbs especially can get pretty expensive. I would use high stock density if that's a possibility, followed by ample recovery time. Usually we can stimulate some of that latent seed bank with our management of that. Um, I would much rather see you try that first rather than interceding. The other thing I would like, you know, I would say is the legumes are going to come. And remember, native, especially prairie ecosystems were low nitrogen systems. One of the things that most producers don't realize is that we're getting way too much nitrogen into the systems that affects carbon to nitrogen ratios and livestock actually need less protein than we think not more, native ecosystems usually only consisted of about 10 to 15% legumes. So we really hesitate to get too much legume in the system. Uh, most of the pink eye and hoof rot problems that occur today are a direct result of, of too high protein in the ration uh, uh, about 30 to 60 days prior to that outbreak. So, so I would just, I'm not, saying you shouldn't, but, but be a bit careful starting out. Mark, what grows in your fence lines on the edge of your trees? Like, is there any legumes there? Yeah, I, I definitely have some weeds uh, or, or what I think of as weeds. I can't tell you exactly, I, I don't recall the exact species, but I definitely have some 
along the fence line. Okay, so I, I broadcast some legumes once in a while. Now, you don't need legumes to get nitrogen-fixing bacteria in your soil. There are other bacteria that do it as well, but legumes are our most common, the rhizobacteria that go along with each one. In my environment, clovers do really well, right? White clover is a weed in your lawn here. I love it. It's not a weed in my field at, at all. Um, now, if you're in a di completely different environment, though, maybe another type of legume would work better. Um, depending on where you're at. So I always, you know, I always say you're, you're looking for, as Gabe said, 10 to 15% legume in a, in a, an area, but what's native there already, right? Is it clover? Is it some uh, trefoil? Is it, you know, maybe alfalfa is kind of native along the fence lines. Um, you know, it depends on your area. I wouldn't try and put in too many different species that are not from your area is all I would say. And I just broadcast them, trample them into the ground and, you know, if they don't all germinate the first year, that's fine. Yeah. They can come up the second year and the third year and the fourth year. Mark, if you uh, really trample an area, high stock densities, you'll get legumes there. They'll, they'll be there. I'll almost guarantee it because they're, they're the first scab, one of the first healers. They're going to show right up right after the Forbes. That's just nature's way of healing that area. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Uh, next up, we have Ed. Ed, are you ready? You are. Look at that. Yeah, well, he's on the ball. Hello, guys. Uh, Ed Hummel here from Ashford, Manitoba. And uh, I've got a question, I guess. Uh, I know Steve doesn't, doesn't use much for synthetic fertilizers, but maybe uh, could you guys, we, we have some guys growing 15 seed blends for silage or grazing. And uh, some recommend synthetic fertilizers, some don't. Um, you know, what's your take on that? Gabe, do you still use synthetic yep. fertilizers in your cropping rotation? Yep. Okay. And the answer is no, I haven't. Last time I used synthetic fertility of any kind was 2007. Haven't used anything since. Here's what we do with our clients. We do proper soil testing, find out the biology in the soil. We want to know both the inorganic and organic fraction of nutrients in your soil. 95 plus percent of soil tests taken today are pretty meaningless because they're only telling you the inorganic fraction in the soil. In other words, what's available the day the sample was taken? Well, you're not seeding the day the sample was taken. You need to know the organic fraction. If you have healthy soils with mycorrhizal fungi, plants have the ability to take in uh, nitrogen via amino acids from mycorrhizal fungi. So your agronomist is cheating you if they're not telling you the organic fraction. I wanna know how much mycorrhizal fungi and how much biology in your soil. Then we can fairly accurately predict how much of those organic nutrients can be used during the growing season by the plant, along with the inorganic. With most cover crops now, this is really going to depend. Do you fertilize a cover crop or not? Okay. I say, what have you been doing on that particular field? If that field has been tilled for years and seen synthetic for years, we're foolish to think we're suddenly going to grow a diverse cover crop without inputs because it doesn't have the biological life there to cycle the nutrients. Now, if you've been going down the soil health path for a while, and building soil health and having the diversity and getting biology, you can significantly back off or re eliminate 
the synthetics. But I, I need to know more before I would tell you to totally eliminate. What commonly we do is tell producers maybe like 50 pounds of urea, just enough to get some growth, okay? That's if you've been fertilizing that field, okay? If you haven't been and you're getting decent growth, that tells me you got decent biological activity. Don't go messing it up with synthetics, okay? Yeah, that's, that uh, makes that's sense. kind of it. Yeah, it, it makes sense. I just uh, kind of broad. I mean, we've always used synthetics just, just because I think if you're going to put all that time and effort in, you got to get a return on it. But some, some companies are preaching that it isn't necessary, but it's pretty broad spectrum. And uh, it, it must affect the root system at some point too. Uh, okay. Over nitrogen probably doesn't get your legumes working. I'm guessing maybe, maybe there's even issues with that. Eh? Okay, let me, let me tell you some data from Manitoba and Saskatchewan, just from last year. We tested 45 farms down to one foot depth, 12 inches, you know, so not very deep. What do you think the average, right. average pounds of nitrogen no, per acre, 45 farms? I wouldn't take a guess. 9,000 pounds. Wow. Okay. Average phosphorus, 2,300 pounds. Average potassium, 11,000 pounds, just in the top foot. Now, how, how deep do your roots go? This whole talk was supposed to be on roots. So, you know, uh, much deeper than that. Right. But that doesn't mean that that much is available. You need the biology to make it available. We are not lacking nutrients in our soil. We lack biology and we lack carbon, those two things. So, so it's foolish of us to think we have to keep adding nutrients. What we need to be realizing is we have to stimulate biology. You stimulate biology via diverse plant roots, plain and simple. Very Comes good. right back to the beginning. Yep, yep. that's right. A polyculture of plants gets you a polyculture of roots, which gets you that polyculture of, of soil organisms. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you already know my, my thoughts on that, Ed. Um, we've got to build biology, not add fertility. It's actually yeah. hurting us when we're adding fertility. I haven't used any synthetic fertilizer for over 20 years. Yep. Um, it just, you know, it doesn't happen in nature. You don't have a nitrogen deficient plant in nature, right? It, right. The, the, the atmosphere above us is 78% nitrogen. There's approximately 32,000 tons of atmospheric nitrogen above every acre. We don't need more nitrogen. So my okay. question on that, if you were to go and tell, like, because I, I can understand and see your point, Ed, that, you know, well, we've been doing it for this long. Is it going to work to just stop? Do a crisscross where you change your management practices and decrease that fertilizer at the same time. So yeah. you won't see that reduction. It's a time thing. And, and if guys, I know guys that have tried it one or two years and it's a failure, it never works. And they just quit. They just quit doing it. And uh you know, that's why my partners and I named our firm Understanding Ag. Those, the people did not have the correct understanding of how uh, ecosystems function. That's why we do proper soil testing, find out the inorganic, the organic fraction, the total nutrients in the soil and the biology. If we know what biology you have, how much are our prey, how much are predators, then we're able to tell and move you in that direction, wean you off slowly. And just like Amber said, 
it, it's just a process. It's a weaning process. Okay. But it, well, I appreciate you know, your it time works. Thank yeah. you very much. It's good advice. So thanks, Thank Ed. You, Ed. Awesome. Thank you, Ed. Uh, so next up, you know, Steve joked about me having Larry as my favorite, but so we have Brett McRae up next and I have to admit he's a favorite too. So a lot of you guys are favorites, believe it or not. Oh, <laughs> Brett, not Brett. We don't want Brett. There's Brett. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give him a second. Brett was my mentee a number of years ago through the Canadian Young Leaders Program. So, okay. Oh, and I see Chantel in the corner. Oh, get the brains of the operation to figure it out. I, I hear you. I have that same issue, Brett. I'll, I'll read it out. Uh, so I have a question for Gabe that's not really on topic, um, but it might be valuable. Our farm needs to expand in order to be sustainable. The traditional route of buying land and financing through a bank may work, but will take a long time to get up the scale we need. What is your opinion of expanding through rented acres versus expanding by partnering with a land investment company? In your opinion, how should a youngish producer uh, expand with regenerative ag? So for 25 plus years, I had an internship program and we had interns on our ranch every year. And one of the first things they would tell me is, how do I ask me, how do I buy land? And I would ask them, why do you want to? Why do you want to be saddled with that debt? I said, in order to be successful at business and to make money, you need to find out what is their demand for? And then can I produce that and supply it at a price point that will make me a reasonable profit? Well, in agriculture, Profit is in things such as that is quick turnover of assets. So things such as honey, broilers, laying hens, you know, the slowest turnover is with beef cattle, hands down. Now, all of us want to be a rancher and raise beef cattle, but that's a slow turnover of assets. So what I always told those interns is you start with the, the enterprises that'll uh, create the greatest cash flow, the greatest return and you save your money. And once you have ample money for a down payment, then you move up to what you can afford. Once you get that paid for, then you go on to the next one. But one of the quickest ways to, to uh, ensure failure is to straddle yourself with too much debt. And I am just not a believer in, in straddling yourself with a lot of debt. Steve, you may think differently. I don't know. But <laughs> no, I, I agree. Um, I got two quotes uh, to say out of that from a couple of my mentors. Uh, first, first one would be Joel Salatin. Um, what got you here won't get you there. Okay, the past generation made a profit in farming off uh, real estate. Okay, they, they bought land fairly cheap and they worked hard and, you know, nothing against that generation, but they, they basically made most of their profit out of real estate appreciation. Okay. We can't do that today. That doesn't work as good. Um, we, we just can't cash flow it in, with agriculture because the land values have, have exceeded the agricultural you know, ability. And now the other one is from uh, Alan Nation. Uh, I heard him say years and years ago that land is a good investment with after-tax dollars. Okay, so if you've got some money, right, you've earned it. And like Gabe just said, if you've earned some money, go out and invest in that because land does go up in value. But if you're trying to pay for that land out of cash flow, right, that's operating your farm, 
that's really tough. And especially even more so today than it was 20 years ago. So um, I guess that's the reason I lease most of my land. Yep. And I didn't finish answering that question is I lease a large part of our operation also. It just makes more sense economically. My neighbor just sold three quarters of land for $17,250 an acre. Okay. There's no way I can cash flow that. I'm really sorry we couldn't hear you, Brett. (laughs) And Chantel, that that makes me sad. Um, The next people up are Sunrise Ranch. Are you guys around? Are you ready to go? Uh, my name is Doug, by the way. I'm, I, I don't know why that said Sunrise. I, we, we get on a lot of these throughout the day, so I think it probably just uh, is automatically programmed in there. Gabe, pleasure to meet you. Steve, I'm a big fan of both of you guys. Read your book, Gabe. It was excellent. Uh, actually, you read it. That was what was really neat is the minute you started talking, I recognized your voice. I was like, ah, I've heard that before. But I'm one of those ranchers that spends you know countless hours in a truck droning away, and I, was like, and I would put you on and, and listen to you and Joel and all the guys and stuff. So real fan, thank you for everything you've done for the movement and, and for us, honestly, to just kind of have that basis to be able to talk from. So that's exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my question is really practical and has almost nothing to do with roots. I hope I don't derail the subject. If I do, um, I apologize for that. Steve, this is, I think you guys are going to be just the perfect ones to ask this. I've been wondering this now for a couple of weeks. Uh, we're primarily a California ranch. So we've got sunshine all the time. Everything's great. Uh, chickens and Pigs are just wonderful out in the field because they're always warm. And recently we've embarked on a project. We're actually acquiring our first um, operational ranch up in Wyoming. And the seasons are totally different up there. And, and one of the things I've been scratching my head about as I put together our grazing plan and our, and our management plan is, uh, and it's a conventional ranch. So um, we kind of have a lot of, you know, get going to do there, a lot of conversion. But as we convert over to RA, one of the questions I have that I've not had to deal with before is how do I deal with um, grazing in the winter and actually getting water out to the cattle? I've thought a number of different things. I mean, our frost line is like 60 inches. I thought, well, maybe we'll bury pipes and then we'll tap into it. I've, I've had crazy ideas about tanking it. We've got a number of water tankers we could put it into, but then I'm wondering, well, doesn't that freeze in the middle of the night? I mean, we were up there looking at this place. It was like six degrees. Well, and you got to understand where we are in California. It was like, 86 degrees. So uh, totally new environment for us. And I'm just wondering what sort of techniques do you guys use to get cattle, uh, get water to your cattle using the management intensive high stock density grazing. We do that, but we're rapidly rotating. And that water down here is just following them around. Um, We're piping it, we're running it, we're tanking it, we're doing everything up there. I'm thinking, gee whiz, if it's all above ground and it's all freezing, how are we going to handle that in in those transition times, I'm not talking about when we need to literally put them in the pens and feed. Uh, we've got that has a facility where we can feed them and, and it, when it's real severe. Uh, and of course, I'm not talking about the summertime because that time I could just run our HDPE pipe out and whatever we've got to do. I'm talking about those transition times when I'm going to get freezing in the middle of the night and that sort of thing. And I'll okay. just uh, leave it at that and let you guys give me your thoughts. I'd appreciate okay, that. Okay, Doug, where in Wyoming? Uh, do you know where Thermopolis is? I sure do. Yeah, largest hot springs in the whole world. We're going to be uh, about 40 minutes um, uh, east, uh, pardon me, west of that. So uh, just heading up into the mountain range there, just on the east side of Thermopolis. Yep. Okay. So on our ranch here in North Dakota, we run all shallow pipelines for spring, summer, fall grazing. You know, we'll freeze down to six feet uh, regularly. So... I cannot afford, and 
not going to invest in burying water lines that deep. So again, it's about context. What do I normally have a lot of in the winter here in the north? Snow. Yeah. Our cattle and sheep all winter on snow. And they do just fine. In fact, we, we have the calves hanging on the cows all winter and just licking snow. And they're just fine. Now, this year, we're having some issues because we have no snow. But what we do is they walk. And, and right now, they're walking about a mile one, one way to get water. And, and they'll come in about once a day. And we're, we're rotating them, moving them, but they still have to have access to water. But this is pretty rare. I have never, I've been on this ranch since 1983. I'm aging myself now. And this is the first winter that we've gotten into January without snow. So now in that environment where you're at, snow can solve the problem part of the time, but you're pretty windswept there and you're not always gonna have snow. Okay. Yeah, we actually, we, we did check the wind up there when we, and, and it's just happens to be in a place where there's not a lot of that. So we're, oh. we're fairly fortunate there. We're in a valley. Okay. So out, how big an operation, you know, do you have a lot of wells out in these pastures or what? Yeah, we have four, we have four wells on 755 acres uh, with an 80 acre lease. So we're 835 total. Um, they're all pretty accessible. They've done a really good job of actually gating them and that sort of thing yeah then i would just make one of those a winter water setup and and use that you know and you just be, you just deal with an you just have a sacrifice lane is that what you do they and they yeah, just and lane move, back and it's for sacrifice you, you move that and then at the end you bail graze on it and cover it up that would be my okay. suggestion steve yeah yeah okay. you bet. that sounds pretty I, simple i actually just wrote an article about uh, my favorite winter water source uh, and it's, okay is that on is that on facebook steve no it'll be coming out in the stockman grass farmer and the canadian oh, okay. cattleman so it i don't even know if it's out yet because that was just my topic i put in last it was kind of funny that you asked that question uh that being said like you know there's some years we don't have enough snow either um and i've got to deal with something so i'm i've got a uh water systems album on my facebook page where there's all sorts of different uh types of water systems, winter and summer. Um, I'm sure you'll get something out of there, but just a couple to note, uh, continuous flow. If you have those pipelines already going, those wells already running, I just crack the valve at the end of it and let it trickle, right? Okay. Flowing water doesn't freeze. Uh, if you can keep that line flowing, then into your trough and overflowing out of your trough and back down a hill somewhere that you've got, you know, so the cattle don't slip on the ice and stuff. Um, then I've done that all winter through minus 48 degree weather and okay. still doesn't freeze up. So keep that water moving and it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not, it's not an issue. Um, I've got a solar system that I use. So I pump it out. It's a motion slash heat sensor. Basically when the cattle walk up to it, it'll pump out, you know, as long as they're standing there, it'll, it'll, uh, uh, keep pumping water. As soon as they walk away, the pump will shut off, and then the the trough will drain back down to the water source. Um, okay. So it's a it's a self draining uh, system that's uh, there too. You can see pictures and video of it there on my my album, I believe. So. Okay, I'll check that out. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Snow's number one. Number two for me is keep the water moving. Right. The last thing Excellent. I'll do is Excellent. try and heat it. Heating water is way more expensive than pumping water. 
that's that's what I that's I mean I tossed around some ideas again we we literally never have to deal with this issue and I I got up there and I was looking at my wife and I she goes well so she could tell the gears were grinding and that the grazing plan was coming together because I wasn't speaking to her over dinner <laughs> and she goes she goes okay look you got to stop thinking about it I go well I'm just not sure how to do water and she goes you'll figure it out talk to some people and so I figured I would jump on with you guys and I really appreciate your input uh, thanks again to both of you and, and really appreciate this. This is really awesome. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Tyler. Tyler, are you ready to go? Yeah, so we're coming from southwest Iowa. So we traditionally we have uh, good preci precipitation. We have good soil. And we're coming into a fourth year of grazing with a, a native CRP grass uh, that we turned back to a pasture. We're using... Uh, cow-calf operation with daily moves. Uh, the issue or struggle that we're seeing is, is there's still just a lot of thin spots. And uh, last year was the driest year that we have had since 2012, but uh, the diversity out there of what is there is fantastic, but there's still, it just is not fully coming alive yet. And I know time is critical, but we'd like to be doing more bale grazing on rolling hay. Uh, like others have said, is water is a huge issue in the winter. Um, sometimes we have a lot of snow. Sometimes we don't have a, uh, you know, we don't have a lot or, uh, you know, we have to cut holes in the pond to be able to get cows to water or like Steve mentioned is doing some of these winter water systems, which I haven't got to yet. But uh, there's just, like I said, it's just not quite coming alive yet, um, but I'm, I'm hanging on hoping. We're running approximately 35 cow-calf right now, and in our area, a conventional farmer is running, you know, one cow-calf uh, unit to two acres, and somebody who's doing daily moves could easily be doing one-to-one -one here, and we're just, we're not quite there. We're doing 35 on 117 acres. Okay, and, and you're moving them daily, but, but how big an area are you giving them each day? So during that spring flush, of course, uh, you know, as you guys have taught us is, you know, we're, we're making some big leaps to cover ground. Um, I, you'd like to shoot, you know, when things slow down, you know, an acre and a half, uh, two acres. Uh, but I really try to use the grazers eye, you know, and try to gauge it on what's going on around me. Um, but I would say usually an acre and a half to two acres would be standard, but we're moving quick in the spring. And, and how long a recovery time before you're back on? So approximately that 45 day window it, uh, is give or take. It's, we'd like to see it longer, but we just don't have the grass yet. Uh, so it's kind of a, you know, it, it's kind of a tough situation because we don't have the grass to be able to rest as long as we want, but we also need the rest to grow the grass. Yep. So, yep. So, so my thoughts on that is more recovery time, higher stock density, you know, so instead of giving one and a half to two acres a day, cut it down to one and that'll actually allow you a bit more time, but you got to grow more biomass to armor the soil and get the, the, the stock density there in order to stimulate that. You know, we're running about 300 pair on about four acres every day and moving them. Wow. So, so four to five usually. And, and so just to give you a rough idea of stuff. So, so I, I guess what I always fear is that, 
if I cram them in too tight and then all of a sudden, you know, when they leave there, it appears to be what looks like a mud lot. Uh, you know, am I, is that soil armor getting punched too far or pugged into the ground to where uh, now I've just I've messed up my water, water infiltration or am I, I'm okay there? It's about disruption and that disruption. I'm not going to, you know, my, my partner, Dr. Alan Williams says, I do all of these things some of the time. I do none of them all of the time. It's about disruption. And so you need to, you need to vary this. That muddying it up, so to speak, will, is probably what is needed to stimulate those species to fill in those areas that you're talking about. Steve? It all comes down to leaving that soil armor, I think. Um, we've got to leave the... It's really hard to plan stuff when you're in that situation. You've got to be already building it. Um, I went through, in 11 years up here, we had seven years of drought. And trying to take on a piece of land and trying to heal it during those droughts was really hard um, because you just didn't get the growth. So, but once it's established, then it's a lot easier. But yeah, it, it is just a on the good years you got to plan and leave that and fix things. Um, on the bad years, while well, it's you know you're behind the eight ball already, so you just got to get there, I guess. I, I don't really have any shortcuts. Thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate it. As everybody said, this is a huge tool for us. Awesome. Thank you, Tyler. Great. Uh, next up, we have Marshall. Are you ready to go? Okay. Oh, right. there we go. It's not Marshall. This is Allie. <laughs> Hi, Allie. Um, I'm down in southeastern South Dakota. And so I'm farming with my dad right now. And it's all corn, soybeans, wheat. And then we have a small feedlot. And he is really doesn't want to change anything. And I'm trying to transition to some more like regenerative practices. We have been no-till for like my whole life. So I have at least that going for me, but I want to, I think like intercropping with our, like our cash crops would be like a good baby step to get him doing at least something. And I'm trying to figure out like a good mix that I could put in between stuff and I, I don't know if I should look more at like roots that would decrease like competition for water and nutrients, or if I should go more for what would work together above ground, or I'm not sure what to do. Okay. Um, I'm very familiar with where, where you're at. Been through there many, many times. So you're growing corn and soybeans, correct? And wheat, yeah. And wheat? Okay. Yeah. Um, the wheat throws a little monkey ranch. What's the rotation? What order does he seed those in? Well, most of it is corn soybeans, but we only do wheat on the fields close to us because he always wants to take the straw off and doesn't want to haul that a long ways. Mm -hmm. So when we do wheat, it's generally wheat, then soybeans, then corn. Okay. Here's what I would suggest and get one of the things, he loves you enough to let you try an experiment on a few acres. So you just tell him, dad, just bear with me. But take your corn off and plant cereal rye into that corn. And then the next spring, you no-till your soybeans into that cereal rye while it's growing. And then you kill that, that uh, cereal rye after, um, after you've planted the beans you will, you, he'll see the difference. You will get uh, 
really good beans from that. You, it shortens the internodes and you get more production off the soybeans. You get that root mass because you're capturing sunlight and you know rye has tremendous root mass. And, and so that's where I would start. I would not start on interseeding. Instead, one of the things you may want to do is tell them, dad, instead of planting wheat right next to, to the farmyard here, let's go with a diverse cover crop mix once. Let's get some diversity in there. And when he sees what that does, and then the next year he plants a wheat crop or whatever in there, he'll start to see some things like that. It's not easy sometimes with parents, you know. Uh, my father-in-law, I had to rent my own land and do what I wanted there. And, you know, I wasn't going to change him till he retired. And that, that was that, unfortunately. But I'd start on things like that. The, the low-hanging fruit, the easy things. Cereal rye, planting soybeans into cereal rye is a no-brainer. It just works, you know. So start on something like that. And cereal rye will benefit soil health quite a bit. When you figure out how to convince your dad to change, let me know. Yeah. Because um, mine, mine's, yeah, yeah, mine still book. hasn't. Yeah. yeah. Write a book um, and you'd be wealthy. <laughs> my dad actually calls me a trader to, to the, the grain farming side. So uh, he, I know he's not on the computer now, so I can say that. Um, I did uh, share an article that I gave my two bits on ways that we could maybe move towards uh, you know, getting away from 100% monocultures. Uh, I just shared the link in chat there if you want to take a peek at it. But yeah, there are some, you know, steps to take in, in getting away from that. But uh, yeah, it's a, a long step when you're dealing with, uh, you know, parents or anybody you're trying to take land over from. I even have landowners that are very resistant to the new ways, right? It's not just the parents you have to convince. You got to talk to landowners too. So I've said for years, the biggest, most important part of my business is actually human resources. It's not if I'm a good grazer or I'm a good cattleman or a good anything. It's, you know, how, how well am I good at uh, dealing with people? Quick story about oh. that. Steve went out and taught in Saskatchewan and his dad actually went to one of his seminars for like the first time in forever. And the one thing he wrote down, the one note he did was the ad for the chemical company that was there. So yeah, it, it takes time if it happens at all. Yeah, he didn't take any, anything <laughs> from my, my talk. <laughs> Great, thank yeah, you. Uh, next up, we have Samuel Turcott, and that actually goes right into this question. I am loving this. I think this question is going to be a really good one. Go for it, Samuel. Hi, how are you doing, everybody? First of all, I just want to say that I really like the book. I just read the book from Gabby Brown. Uh, I bought that for myself, from me to me, uh, for Christmas, and uh, I really enjoyed it. It was just great, great reading, and I would take like 500 more pages, I, I would say. Uh, my question is, like, do you feel that politics and uh, big corporations, they kind of hear the, the, message, the message about uh, agriculture and uh, regenerative agriculture and those kind of things? And uh, if they hear it, does they are kind of ignorant about it or they kind of uh, respect and everything about that, that kind of uh, good way to do agriculture, I would say? Okay, well... Seeing as how I spent seven hours on Zoom meetings with General Mills today, I think I can answer some of this question. For whatever reason, our business is getting contacted by very large multinational corporations, 
amongst others. Uh, the word regenerative is catching on. It's resonating both with farmers, ranchers, with consumers, and industry is smart enough to know that the consumers are beginning to demand products that are raised and grown in a regenerative manner. Okay, are they willing to pay a premium for that? Not yet, but it's coming. Just yesterday, I had a lengthy conversation with an oil company that produces biodiesel. And they want to be able to claim that they are sourcing their grain from farmers who are using regenerative practices. And so they're actually going to hire um, our firm to help them move down this path. We hope that will add value to the price of this grain for farmers. It's coming, it's taking some time, but, but it's a long way from where it was when Steve and I started many, many years ago. And I don't care if we're talking uh, beef cattle or laying hens or whether we're talking wheat or soybeans, it doesn't matter. The whole supply chain is becoming aware of the word regenerative and they wanna move down this path. It, it, it absolutely amazes me. Um, let's see, we're Wednesday evening. I gotta add this up here. I've spoken to five large multinational companies just this week, okay, about this very topic. So it's coming now. If you ask Abe Brown, what do you rather do? I would rather be on this right here tonight than sitting talking to any of them, okay? Because my heart, I'm a farmer rancher. This is what I love and enjoy doing. In saying that though, we're kidding ourselves if we don't engage them, work with them, try and get them to understand because it's gonna be good for us in the long run if we engage them now. Does that make sense, Samuel? Yes, that makes sense for sure. And like, cause I work on a feedlot at the moment and I had that discussion with uh, like my coworker and those kind of people that are involved in that feedlot industry. And they like, they kind of think that make no sense for them. But I do think that they are pretty much close about that, that topic. Cause they don't want to, they don't want to change thing. Cause that the thing that they do it now work for them for the moment. But mm -hmm. I do think that we need to think about the next generation and those kind of uh, stuff well, as well. I got to tell you, just here um, in November, we signed an agreement with one of the top three feeders in the United States, so one of the big five, to help move their feedlots down a regenerative path. And they're actually to, starting to move animals out of the feedlot onto the landscape. You know, that's huge. We also are working right now with many large dairy operations. We're working with many large poultry operations to move their animals out of confinement, out onto the landscape. That's a good thing. So it's coming, Samuel, it's coming. I think when uh, major restaurants change their menu and start changing things to meet a, a catchphrase, right? Right now, regenerative agriculture maybe is a catchphrase for them. Um, that means we're making big progress, mm -hmm. right? We're growing, we're doing well. Um, I got to have a chat with the um, president of marketing of A&W 
um, and we chatted all about what grass-fed means and uh, what regenerative agriculture means. So at least they're reaching out. Yes, it's a marketing tool for them, right? It's all about making money for these big companies. But you know what? If they can also help advertise what real regenerative agriculture is, that's great. Because I'd rather they come talk to me or Gabe or somebody who's in the field than just making their own, you know, marketing propaganda and, and going ahead with something that's not real. So, um, yes, we got to make sure that we're, we're moving forward, but we're not, you know, some people are greenwashing things or, you know, taking the idea and then not really being it, just claiming that they are. So um, we need to be in contact with these big companies or these, these organizations so that we can make sure they're on the right path and we don't get sidetracked. Awesome. Thanks, Samuel. Um, this next question we have coming up is from Big Tom Perkins. And I find it kind of funny, Joel, or Gabe, because it was, I think, the first question that I ever really cornered you with once I had you locked in a car with us and you couldn't get away. So I, I, I love this question. Um, Tom, go for it. Yeah. Um, just how do you know what cover crop plants to plant and, uh, you know, in your soils and where do you start? I always hear you talk about resource concerns. Um, How do you narrow that down? Yeah. So what you look at is on that particular field, what is it it needs most? Okay. Obviously, you heard both Steve and I talk about armor. You got to protect that soil. So if it's bare soil, you need armor. That's your number one resource concern. Okay. Maybe there's not soil aggregation and you can't infiltrate water, then that would be your main resource concern. I usually just focus on the main ones. Now, carbon and biology are always taken into account. And then what you do is, okay, which species in my environment is going to do that the best? So for instance, if your resource concern is carbon, what's gonna grow the most biomass to cover that, that uh, ground. Well, uh, depending on where you're located, you know, it may be cereal rye, it may be sorghum sedan grass, maybe a, a millet, depends on your environment. So that's going to be the basis of that mix. Then we, we like it just like native prairie likes to be approximately, you know, uh, two thirds grasses. We'll put two thirds grasses in the mix, then we'll put some forbs in there. By that, I mean species such as buckwheat, things like that. And then we'll put a small amount of legumes in the mix. Now, it depends if you're going to graze it. And, you know, if you have access to livestock, uh, that makes that makes cover crops an absolute no-brainer. But you take those things into account. But it's all about your resource concern first. And what I tell people starting out is don't, don't be concerned about getting to 15 to 20 species. You got to walk before you run. Try and even put in five to seven to start and see what works on your farm. Now, you got to pay attention to carbon nitrogen ratios and things like that. So, so the worst thing you can do is go to a seed salesman and, and buy something that they recommend and put it in. You need to have a say in it. You need to do your homework. Regenerative how, agriculture how is a thinking person's game. You got to think the things through. Otherwise, it, it could be a wreck. Okay. Do you have a specific qu- question besides that, Tom? How do you 
uh, determine your carbon to nitrogen ratio? I mean, what kind of a test do you do to find yep. that? Yep, that and, and you don't. What, what all soil is approximately 11 parts carbon to one part nitrogen, okay? Your legumes, uh, species like that will be lower in carbon, higher in nitrogen. They're gonna break down faster. Think of it this way. If you lay a piece of clover on the soil and you lay a corn stalk on the soil, which is gonna break down faster? Well, the biology can consume the clover fat much faster. So that has a lower carbon to nitrogen ratio. So if you want residue, you plant higher carbon crops, things like corn, sedan grass, millet, uh, barley, oats, rye, okay? If you have too much residue on the soil, which is hard to get in a healthy soil, but if you do starting down this path, then you plant lower carbon crops, things such as your clovers, or you terminate those crops faster, you know, at an earlier growth stage, and it'll cycle through. It's all about feeding biology. In regenerative agriculture, you need to think like a microbe. What does biology need? You know, it needs armor, needs a home protection, needs water, okay, it needs a food source. So you think like biology and that'll steer you down the right path. There's a lot of good data out there on carbon nitrogen ratios and then uh, uh, designing cover crop mixes accordingly. Okay, so you're not a big proponent of uh, bringing the fertility rate up to begin with? Or you're, you're more about putting the, getting the biology to work? No, you know, um, before white man came to this continent, what was it, who was out fertilizing everything yet? Look at, look at historical data, the tremendous biomass that was being produced throughout the prairie provinces. Mm -hmm. Nobody was fertilizing that, right? Right. Now, we got to get back to that. That's where animals and perennials come in. I'm bringing my part of this question back to the roots. <laughs> For me, when I'm trying to plant a cover crop, it depends again on your context. All of my land that I take over is going into perennial pasture, right? I'll take over a canola field. It's going into perennial pasture. I'll take whatever I take over, it's, it's pasture. So when I'm looking at adding a new species, I'm, I'm more worried about what root systems I'm putting in the ground. Okay, I need a polyculture of root systems. So I would like some uh, creeping grasses and some bunch grasses and a variety of them. I'd like some creeping legumes and some you know, tap-rooted legumes. I want some forbs. I would love some shrubs even. Um, I mean, Alberta is known for the, our uh, provincial flower is the wild rose, but everybody hates the wild rose bush. I love it. It's a different type of root system in my soil. So I'm gung-ho with that. Uh, and I'm pretty cheap, so I will go out to a, you know, a neighbor, uh, somebody down the road, a seed dealer down the road, and I'll ask him, what do you got for broken bags? <laughs> what do you got for old stock? And, and I'll try and put as many different types of root systems in the ground as possible. Now, I'm not as scientific. Um, maybe it's a shotgun approach, and some people don't like that, but I believe in the long run, my perennial pastures are going to fix anything anyway. Right. Once we get those root systems in there, then we get the biology in there and the biology is going to fix things. Right. It might take a little longer. I admit that, but I'm pretty cheap. So I throw out, you know, whatever seeds I can find and then let my animals 
you know, bring in the biology there. That animal impact is so important in this too, because there's actually, there's two parts to animal impact. There's the physical stimulation on the ground by the animal's hooves, right? Seed to soil contact, uh, pushing that, um, the residue to the ground to get it to recycle, but there's also a biological impact. Okay, the, the manure brings bacteria or, or biology to the soil. The urine brings biology to the soil. The saliva and the snot bring uh, biology to the soil. There's symbiotic relationships between the uh, herbivore and the soil organisms, right? The, the microbes and everything are interchangeable there. They're, they work together or else they're food for biology. So I think that's a big part of it too, is that, you know, not just what we're putting out there, we need to get the biology in there, the root systems in there, and then the livestock on there as well to get all that biology working together. If I may add a little yeah. bit to that, Steve, that you're exactly right. It's the, it's the biology. One of the things that our team has been working on lately is to really realize the importance of the bacterial to fungal ratio in the soil. And if you're gonna establish perennials, the closer your fungal bacteria ratio is to one is to one to one, the better stand establishment you're gonna have. And what drives that change? You know, if you take Steve use the example of a canola field, you're gonna be highly bacterial centric, bacterial dominant there. But the gut of a rumen, a ruminant animal has a higher fungal component. The manure that it's coming out of that rumen is a higher fungal component. What we're finding is in very dry, brittle environments, we're actually changing the fungal to bacterial ratio using manure that's right out of the animal. And that's the medium where the new seedlings establish. So nature has a way of taking care of these things. Sorry, can I add to that, Gabe? I got a question to go with that. Um, I talked to Nicole Masters a while ago, and she talks about if you're trying to increase your fungal in your soil, you need to stomp down uh, dead plant material. If you're trying to increase your bacterial, you stomp down green plant material. Well, and that, that comes back to the carbon. She's exactly right. Specifically, it comes back to the lignified carbon. And so what we're doing, say you take your case, Steve, you want to take a canola field, I would recommend first a year or two of annuals that and grow that carbon, let it get a bit more mature, no matter what broken seed that seed dealer had, broken bags, use that, but let it get higher carbon, get the animals out there, put it on the soil surface, and she's exactly right, that will stimulate uh, more fungal component in the soil. Now that's gonna stimulate, stimulate saprophytic fungi. We're trying to get more mycorrhizal fungi, but that'll come from those roots that, that you talked about. I think sometimes we overcomplicate things and you know, the land's gonna fight to get back to its base, right? So realistically, like you can kind of let something Nature slide. is always self-organizing, self-healing, self-regulating. Nature will always come back to balance. Yeah, Our problem exactly. is we don't allow her to. Uh, next, that's, that's the biggest thing. We think we need to control everything. That's a whole <laughs> other topic though. Um, next up we have Jean-Pierre. Jean, are you ready? Yeah, can you hear me? We can, okay, I'm yeah. from uh, Northeastern Ontario, a place called Timmins. 
And uh, I've been to Timmins. Right on. I saw you in New Liskard a couple of years ago. Attended your your presentations for a couple of days. It was great. We have a pretty short growing season here, uh, about 85, 90 days, if you believe the calendar. Like our last frost is in May start, and then the first the killing frost is early September. But of course, the season carries on. And uh, I like to increase the energy content of our grasses and do the annuals, and like the, you talk about, Gabe, uh, biannuals, fall seeded biannuals, and annuals. But uh, to do that, what I need a no-till planter. Everybody okay. around here says uh, that, that's not going to work. Are you in a perennial system now? Yes. Yep, I would not. There's no way I'm going to recommend you go buy a planter or anything. You use, it's all about biology. Increasing the nutrient density of your forages is all about biology. That comes back to uh, proper stewardship, you know, uh, using adaptive grazing principles, higher stock density, longer periods of recovery, you know, proper periods of recovery. And you will increase bricks content of those forages and you'll increase the diversity there. You don't have to buy a drill. You don't have to seed things. Your, your livestock can do it for you. Okay, thank you. If you're just a perennial uh, operation, I haven't even owned a tractor in over 20, 20 some years. Um, right. Yeah, you don't, you don't need equipment to get seeds out there. Um, I've, uh, I've broadcast seed on top. Uh, I've run it through the cattle, uh, through mineral. If I really want to do something, I can hire someone to come in. I've, I've hired, a, uh, I think, three or four times I've hired a zero-till drill to come in. Um, for the record, all three times it's failed. Um, <laughs> just the, the year that I decide to try it, I'm not saying it doesn't work, yeah. but the, the years that I have tried to do it are the years where we get severe drought or severe flooding or something. And right. so, yeah, I'm sticking to my, you know, broadcast something out there or even that's a all we that's all we do here now too is broadcast but uh we're basically stuck on with cool season grasses and legumes and like, like you said it we're not it's not that bad we just got to learn to steward it better yeah but but you will be you're in a cool season environment yeah you know i'm predominantly all cool season the thing of it is then get the animals that have the epigenetics to thrive in those conditions on your farm when we took over that uh, canola field a couple of years ago, um, I did put barley and oats and uh, sunflowers and some, you know, larger seeds out there. We still just broadcast it. We just broadcast it separate from all the little seeds. So I went out there once and broadcast all the little seeds. And then I went back out there and broadcast all the big seeds. And actually I saw a big difference on that part of the field. I actually separated the field into three pieces because I always experiment, right? I want to know what... <laughs> Um, if I do one thing this year and another thing next year, well, that's that's a broken experiment because we have different conditions. But if I can split a field into three pieces on the same year under the same growing conditions, then I get a, a much more beneficial experiment. And where I put those, uh, the barley and oats in, well, with sunflowers, but the birds ate all my sunflower seeds, so that didn't work. Um, but yeah, we saw quite a remarkable difference in the, the total production of that. And I, the reason I wanted to put those in was because I heard uh, Dr. Christine Jones years ago. She talked about how the, the sugars pushed out the root tips by the cereal grasses is different than most of your perennial grasses. So it feeds a different type of bacteria, which just increases the amount of uh, diversity in your biology. 
right? So I wanted those different types of root systems in there again, just to kickstart that biology. And uh, yeah, it, I think we did a 21 species mix. And I believe Gabe, you showed a slide one, one time years ago about how there's a spike in biology after what I think it was eight species of root systems and then another one at 16. Well, like what, what's really happening there, you, you get more synergies after about seven or eight species, okay? Now realize um, right now through use of mass spectrometer, they have the ability to measure over 2,500 different phytochemical compounds in uh, plants, animal proteins, etc. Every plant has the ability to send out multitudes of different root exudates to attract different biology. So you're really compounding that, Steve. You talked about, you put sunflowers in that with it. Each of those species will do multiples more different uh, chemical compounds that they're able to put out. So it's a compounding positive effect. So could I throw broadcast out there like oats or peas or something ahead of the cattle and let them trample it in? And I would say yes, but that's entirely dependent on the time of the year, etc. You right. know, you may want to try going out there in the fall if you really want to do something. Again, I don't think you really need to, but if you do, you could go out there in the fall of the year and put out some cereal rye, some of those fall biennials. See, then they will actually get going in the fall, of course, and then they'll they'll have that kickstart, head start, so to speak, in the spring and get grown, uh, going, or go out and maybe do a dormant broadcast of like oats, barley, et cetera. So it gets going very early. Right. I think you could probably speak to that more, but um, when it comes to broadcasting, it is so dependent on the weather. Um, you know, you can have a great take with some great weather, or you can have a really terrible take if the weather turns. So yeah, but you don't put as much into it that way. You, you tell me the year you're going to get the perfect weather, and I'm going to tell you the year that it's going to work perfect. Um, what I try and do, too, is, is time it. If I'm going to broadcast seed out there, if I can time it right before my animals go out there, and if I'm really good at timing it, um, right before there's a rainstorm, too. Right? If I can get the animals out there and step it into the ground, and then the rain comes, and, it just, and then I get my animals off, uh, that's perfect timing. Right? So if I've got one little field, I can usually play with that a little bit. But if I'm trying to set up and, you know, the whole pasture is brand new and it's all got to be broadcast, then it's a little tougher. Um, but yeah, a little bit of rain helps you step that into the ground too. And then that high stock density to, to really get that seed to soil contact. Um, if they don't germinate this year, well, they're out there. Those seeds are going to come maybe the next year, except, except the sunflowers, because the birds sure like to pick them up off the ground. I found that out. <laughs> you might find your wife out there eating them too. If oh, she yeah. Likes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Jean-Pierre. Uh, next up, we have a question that about uh, so what soil tests are valuable and what are the best resources for, inter for interpreting the results of those tests? Yeah. So here's what we do with all our clients. We recommend the Haney Soils Test, H-A-N-E-Y. We recommend a PLFA test, phospholipid fatty acid test, and a TNE, total nutrient extraction, those three. They're not very expensive, um, approximately $50 on the TNE and Haney and about 100 on the PLFA. 
Unfortunately, there's only one lab we recommend you do those at. That lab is in Nebraska. It's called Regen Ag Lab. Now, I have nothing against labs in Canada at all, but the Haney Soils Test takes very specific equipment. What we did is we actually pulled soil samples and then we sent subsamples of that to multiple labs and they varied from 10 to 93% difference. We also had sent the sample to Dr. Haney himself, used that as the baseline. Because there's so much variation, we decided as a company, we can't uh, be uh, making recommendations if we're not confident in it. So you can send samples across the border to Regen Ag Lab. All you have to do is go on their uh, website and they have the protocol. For reading that protocol, um, Lance, the owner of Regen Ag Lab has uh, uh, information available, fact sheets to read it, or you can contact us at Understanding Ag. We have fact sheets. We'll be happy to send you at no cost on how to read those samples. So again, I am in no way discouraging you from using local Canadian labs, okay? But that's just what we've found right now. We just, we do not want to make recommendations if we're not 100% confident in the, the methodology that was used at those labs. Is that fair enough, Steve? I tried to not. Yeah, you, you, that's <laughs> your department. I tried to be politically correct. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Uh, I know Kara in Alberta here just started up a new lab yep. and it's supposed to be pretty top notch. Um, I'm uh, not one to speak on this probably because I'm not big on soil tests. Like I said, I believe my perennial polycultures can pretty well fix anything. The few times I have done soil tests in the past, Basically, the agronomist will come up and tell me that, uh, you know, you're, you're a little bit short in this, maybe a little bit short in this, but other than that, one quote from the, the fellow was that other than nitrogen was a little bit low and a little bit low in sulfur, he said, I've never seen such good soil characteristics. So I'm like, okay, good, thanks. See you in 10 years, I might, get, might hire you again. So uh, yeah, I'm not one to answer that question. I don't do a lot of soil tests. No, no, you won't hire him again. <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> um yeah good question yeah dr you i just want to say dr yamili there at the cara lab in in alberta is doing is doing a good job yep she is that's great seeing some of those studies happening um next up we have jordan's iphone i'm thinking it's a jordan but it might not be Ray, go my ahead. name is zach Zach, you're not a Jordan at all. Jordan's my wife. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're in Southwest Michigan. Um, and um, my question is a little bit about bale grazing. Um, we, we make our own hay here. And basically, since I've started, I've always had more animals than I've had ground, you know, so we can always get into that situation where, you know, we're feeding hay sometimes in the summer. And one of my questions is about uh, with bale grazing or taking on new pastures, um, taking on new leases. Uh, one thing about making hay is, you know, it's really tough to go in those fields when they're uneven. A lot of times we're taking on ground that, you know, we've had combines, into the year before when it's real wet and there's ruts everywhere. So I guess just 
generally the way we do our rotation and stuff, if I take on a new field, I will put an annual in it, try to get um, hay off it that first year and then get a perennial seeded in the fall. And then if I can get it fenced and turn it into a pasture, I try to do that. But sometimes, you know, that field might be 15 miles away or, you know, so I think there's some context there too. But um, one of my questions, or I guess it's about when that ground is kind of, I call it wrecked, where does the whole making hay fit into this for you? And also then how, how strongly do you advise pushing pasture and all that ground? I mean, obviously you've got the cost of the equipment and that sort of, th that sort of thing is part of it as well. So I don't know yeah. if that's specific enough, but I guess so it's always Steve, kind how of- blunt, How blunt do you want Gabe to be? <laughs> We, we can be pretty blunt in here because we we can apologize ahead of time. Yeah. So yep. uh, I'm sorry, but this will be blunt. Yeah. Go ahead. So, so Zach, in, a, in all honesty, if you're feeding cattle during the summer, you've got way too many cattle. And I would, would not recommend putting up hay the first year before going to perennials. If you can, now I understand logistics and you explain that may it may not be feasible to graze some of those acres i would much rather see you seed a diverse a diverse cover crop the first year graze it and then seed your perennials you're going to get a much better stand you'll have soil armor you, you'll just get a much more productive stand of perennials now uh, let's face it in a northern environment like we are we normally need some hay but we don't need near as much hay as people think they need. You know, last year we fed hay for 38 days on our ranch. This year we haven't fed hay yet. And, and um, uh, as the way it's looking, we may, might not this year. So that's the goal. Now I understand if you're starting out renting different parcels that it may not be feasible to have the cattle out grazing, but I always ask people, are you in this as a hobby or a business? Because it's gonna change decisions drastically. There is no way making large quantities of hay and feeding for long periods of the year that you can be profitable. I just read this morning that now they think in the lower 48 states here, average cow cost per year, $965, okay? Mm -hmm. There's no money in that, come on. So the only way to really get money at that is you, you, you have to cut back on feeding any type of processed forage, keep the animals out grazing as long as possible. Steve is the expert on bale grazing. I'll turn it over to him. I guess my first comment from what you were saying there is exporting nutrients, okay? How can we manage our land? One of the, the regenerative principles that I, you know, adhere to as much as I possibly can is I try not to export nutrients, but you know, if you've got to make some hay, can you make it, make some bales and feed it on the same land or at least transfer it to land that's going to have some benefit, right? Maybe we're, we're stealing from Peter to pay Paul in that way. But um, you know, as long as there's still guys out there willing to make hay, I will gladly take their nutrients. Okay, because they're exporting nutrients out of their land, and that just helps me build mine quicker. So, 
um, you know, for 20, 20 plus years, I have refused to make hay because I don't want to export any nutrients. Um, I, I guess that's my, my biggest comment out of that is try and get away from it. Um, you know, I, and I know in, if we're going to look in the big picture, if nobody makes hay, then we won't have any. So in that, if that's the case, yeah, can we make it on the same land? But and feed it there or and then maybe change it around right one year make take the first cutting of hay on this field and then graze it the second time and then maybe the year after take a you know switch it around do it on a different piece of land um yeah and then there's issues with being bumpy land but um and if i may steve that's exactly what we're doing on our ranch we will hay a particular paddock about once every five years but those bales remain where they come out of the baler and the cows bale graze on that piece, but then it's grazed the next four years. So about once out of five. So my nutrients are remaining on my uh, on my land. Even the year you make the bales, it still remains on your land. Yep. Yep. Excellent. Yep. So I know we're a little bit over time, but Gabe, if it's okay with one more question, um, just we like to kind of call it and let people know that the uh, I got till midnight, so we're good. Oh, good. He's stuck here, guys. <laughs> you can grill him all night long. <laughs> well, officially, we've got one more question. Officially, one more question, and then we're going to cut this off. Uh, then it's then it's after hours time. Yeah. Um, so next up, we have Nisha. Uh, Nisha, do you want to go ahead? So, hi, I'm Nisha, and it's lovely to meet everyone. My question is, I had three questions, but I'll just ask one. What do you see as the biggest gap in in scaling regenerative from your point of view? Same question General Mills was asking me today. Um, The biggest impediment is you don't know what you don't know, okay? It's the fear factor. Farmers, ranchers, they've been conditioned. You know, Steve talked about his father and that, you know, he's set in his ways. You know, we heard that from several asking questions tonight. They don't want to step out of their comfort zone. Some of us are forced to because of economic reasons, etc. Now, here in the States, the other thing is the federal government. Their whole program is antagonistic to regenerative agriculture, but there is absolutely no reason we cannot scale. We have clients as small as five acres. We have clients over 1 million acres in size. This can be done on any scale because it's all about soil, roots, and biology, okay? I like how you put the roots in. Yeah, way to throw in roots there. I like that. Uh, The biggest uh, hindrance, I think, to the scaling it is the you know the that space between people's ears quick and blunt (laughs) we've just got to accept it right it's a we've been trained by our universities and colleges we've been trained by our you know the the past generation everybody's training us Um, I think there's a difference between being trained to do something and being taught how to think okay I mean I was really uh, antagonistic in college because I wouldn't accept Right? They would say something, and I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would we do that? <laughs> well, that's just good. This is what we're supposed to do. This is how we're supposed to do it. And I didn't like those answers. So, yeah, some of my professors might not have liked me very much, but I, uh, I like to argue quite a bit. 
Yeah, and um, we have NC State in my backyard. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. So I'm like all about 80-20. And I think if we could educate the educators and the agronomists, we'd reach a lot more of the practitioners because they listen to them almost yeah. blindly. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> I have my ways. <laughs> so Steve, if I may, she's from North Carolina. Uh, tomorrow evening, there's a free webinar on applying the soil health principles to small acreage. And that's going to, it's free. All you got to do is go on the Understanding Ag website and sign up. But Brian Downing is one of our consultants. He lives in North Carolina and he's going to be giving that presentation. Thank so you. a free webinar for anyone who wants to sign up. Thank you for all that you've done uh, to move regenerative forward. Yeah. We appreciate I, it. I learned from Steve. He's my mentor. <laughs> Even yeah, though right. he's much younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I started late. I'm a slow, slow learner. To officially close this out, I'd like to thank Gabe for uh, spending his evening with us here tonight. Uh, just an honor to have him here. Um, of all the speakers that I've met and dealt with over the years, Gabe, I think uh, you're the most down to earth because uh, you love soil, I guess, right? Um, but no, uh, it's because I'm a simple, simple man. You two <laughs> know that. You spent time with me. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for uh, spending time with us. Um, I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank the Gateway Research Organization again for, for helping us run this. Um, you know, if you've got a, uh, a research association or a, a nonprofit group in your area that's doing this type of things, become a member, right? Get, a, get involved with them. They're just fantastic. And take one more step and be a director on their board because these are farmer-led um, you know, programs. Um, I've been on the GROW board for probably 20 plus years. And uh, I get to, you know, I get to suggest which speakers we bring in and which conferences we have and things like that. So it's, it's fantastic to be a part of those organizations. So by all means, guys, uh, uh, get involved. Um, we are officially over. Uh, thank you very much. And now the after networking networking starts. <laughs>